What's up? I'm Dan Blewett, author of the new book, Clean Your Cleats, Advice on Baseball and Life for Ballplayers. This is a sample chapter that I'm excited to present to you. This is chapter 27, and it's called Coaches. And I have a lot to say about coaches. I had some amazing coaches throughout my years in baseball, and I had some pretty rough coaches in those days, too. And so this chapter is all about forging good relationships with your coaches, about how to understand their motives, about how to give them the benefit of the doubt, when to listen, and when to kind of forge ahead and ignore what might be bad advice for you. There are some great coaches out there that mean well. There are some not great coaches that just want to constrain players and make them do what they believe they should do. And it's a really can be a tough balance finding the, well, the balance between it. Because you should, as I mentioned in the book, sign up for the free trial. Uh, you should tinker with what coaches are teaching you. Even the worst coaches will teach you something. You'll learn something from all of them. And the best ones will be hopefully lifelong mentors. I still am in contact with many coaches from my, my playing days. Um, and they've been such a huge influence on who I am as a grown man. So this chapter is all about coaches. I feel like this is one of the most meaningful and powerful chapters of the whole book. So I wanted to share this as a sample so you get a taste of what the book's about. Hope you enjoy it. Chapter 27. Coaches. We convince by our presence. Walt Whitman. You can and will learn something useful from every single coach you ever have. No matter how wonderful or terrible they might be at teaching the game of baseball, you will leave with something. Good coaches send you on your way with a goodie bag of information, tips, and tools that will serve you well on your journey. But some are better than others. Think of all the birthday parties you attended in your childhood. At little Julie's party in fifth grade, you went home with a goodie bag packed with homemade cookies, a Chinese finger trap, a small water gun, dinosaur trading cards, and not one, but two packages of sweet tarts. Julie's folks knew what was up. At Thomas's party, however, you left with a goodie bag containing six baby carrots, a Pez dispenser, and not one, but two packets of cinnamon apple-flavored instant oatmeal. Thomas's parents were monsters. I trust that today, they are safely behind bars where they belong. No matter what kind of goodie bag of baseball knowledge you're sent off with, it will provide you with some kind of nourishment. Approach any new coaching relationship with an open mind because you never know what you'll get or how you'll use it down the road. There are many great former players who can't teach the game as well as they played it. These coaches might not be good at explaining how they did what they did because it always came naturally to them. But they can potentially teach you a lot about the mental side, the emotional side, and all the little grungy details that no one else even knows exists because they played at such a high level. What they'll be able to give you will be different from a coach who had to work really hard to stay in the starting lineup. Those types know all the drills, all the nuts and bolts, because they had to study harder to get the same grades on the field. You'll get very different items in your goodie bag from them. The coaches who shake up your world, never to be the same again, will do so in lots of different ways. Some will be kind, encouraging, and build you up when you're down, when you need to see someone better in the mirror. Others will be tough and unrelenting, transforming you from soft clay to hard brick. Others still will demand reasons for everything you do, forcing you for the first time to really think through a ball game, a practice, and your role within both. You won't know what you don't know, 
what you could be, or what you've been missing until one of these men or women comes along and changes everything, defying the reality you've built for yourself. This is why you have to be open-minded, be a good listener, and be slow to judge the merits of being pushed outside your comfort zone. You may not realize just how impactful a coach was until he's gone, and you can never go back to the way things were. But not all of them will be great, not all of them will be encouraging, and some of them will require tactics to get along with. Sign up for the free trial. Have you ever signed up for a free trial of something? Maybe an online software app that costs five bucks after the initial one-week period ends? Or maybe a subscription service where you get a new shipment of something once a month? Companies do this to give you a chance to try their service and see if it's right for you. And it makes a lot of sense when you have something really good to offer that customers may be initially skeptical of. A new vegan cookie delivery service where each month I get 12 new cookies made entirely of ugly mushrooms? Definitely need to try it first. Think of coaching advice as a free trial. Yes, sometimes coaches will bully you into doing what they want you to do, and that's a sad thing that we'll cover in a bit. But for the majority of coaches, their coaching tips will be suggestions that you can try on for size and either reject or keep. You will occasionally have coaches who are very good players in their day who will tell you to do weird things that don't make a lot of sense. You'll also have coaches who weren't very good players, or perhaps are just volunteer dads, who will give you excellent coaching tips that former big leaguers would agree with. A lot of times, because of the internet and the way today's coaches learn the game, it's difficult to tell which tips are good and useful. Rather than try to screen information and figure out who to listen to or which pieces of advice you should follow, just try things out. Take the coach up on a free trial of the things he's asking you to learn or do. See how it works for a day, a week, or a month. If it's no good, Cancel and throw those mushroom cookies in the trash. You're no worse off for trying. Know your set point. You have a set point for lots of aspects of your game, and it represents what normal looks or feels like for you. What does your typical swing look and feel like? That's your set point as a hitter. What is your mindset like on a typical day when you're feeling good, not too high or too low? That's your mental set point. You may not quite know this yet, in part because you have to try a lot of things and figure out what does and doesn't work for you. If you're a young hitter, for example, you might not know yet that a big leg kick in your batting stride just doesn't work for you. But if you're a 24-year-old hitter in his third season of pro ball, you've probably tried so many different types of strides that you know whether or not a big leg kick fits your body and the way you hit. Then, you can definitively say, that doesn't work for me, and limit your adjustments to things that you know fit your hitting style. It's not about being closed-minded, but rather narrowing and limiting the types of input you're willing to receive because you know what works. We do this with food all the time. Even if you love pasta, there are probably a lot of types you haven't tried before because there are just so many. But as a pasta fan, you'd have no issue trying a ravioli with a different filling a tortellini of a different color, or an odd pasta shape you've never seen before. You like pasta, so you've got almost nothing to lose. But say the food is cheese, and most types of cheese upset your stomach. How do you feel then when someone suggests you try a new type of cheese? You'll probably politely decline, 
just like the pro hitter who knows that high leg kicks don't work well for him. Sure, the new cheese could be a variety that doesn't bother you, but more likely than not, it's going to leave you with stomach distress that ruins your day. This is why you have to try things out when you're developing as a player so you can see what works for you and what doesn't. If you'd never eaten cheese before, you'd have no clue that it would tie your stomach in knots. As you get older, though, you'll begin to whittle down coaching advice into things that you believe could or will work versus that which you've already tried enough of to know that it probably will not. If you've already tried eight different styles of big leg kick strides as a hitter and none have worked, you might say, no thank you, when your new hitting coach suggests leg kick style number nine. And that's okay, because you've signed up for the free trials in the past and figured out what helps and what doesn't. But if you haven't done the work tinkering and trying new things, then keep sampling until you're pretty confident you know what your boundaries are and what your set point for your mechanics or mindset might be. Then, you can make small adjustments within that container of things you know to be good for you. Some assembly required. In college, I didn't have a real pitching coach until the very end of my career. Our head coach was a position player in his day, I can't remember which position, and our assistant coach was a former catcher. Both had valuable insights into different aspects of my game, but I really didn't get much help on my pitching mechanics from either of them. I turned to pitching books and scoured the internet at a time when there wasn't a ton out there on YouTube or pitching websites to help me along. Today, the internet is brimming with information, some bad, much of it good, for you to wade through if you need more than your coaches can give you. If you're a catcher, what are the odds one of your coaches was a high-level catcher? Not that likely, so you'll have to go looking elsewhere for instruction and those elite-level insights you need. Every goodie bag, though, has something in it for you. My college coaches, more than anything else, gave me an opportunity at a time when no one else would. I didn't have any college offers except to walk on to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, which I did, or go to a local community college that had sent me a letter. I needed innings, needed structure and discipline, needed to be around other players better than I was. My strength coach helped me get bigger and stronger so I could compete, physically, at the Division I level. He pushed me harder than I'd ever been pushed and expanded my idea of what I was capable of. Though I didn't get pitching mechanics help that I perhaps needed, I got all of that and was given a chance to tow the rubber as I improved. I filled in the rest of the blanks myself, and I was lucky that it proved to be enough. I came in as a lowly freshman with no scholarship and left as the number one starter. Would I have been better off with a dynamite pitching coach all five years of my college days? Maybe. Probably. But I could have also gotten some Yahoo who held me back or forced me to do things in a counterproductive way. As it turned out, we hired a volunteer my fourth year named Tim who asked more questions than he gave answers and helped me figure out who I was as a pitcher. It was as if I was doing a jigsaw puzzle by myself for three years, and he helped me finish it right when I needed an extra pair of hands. He provided a great boost at the right time. Maybe, though, the freedom I had, the some-assembly-required nature of my college development, was the perfect thing for me. I had opportunity, resources, and coaches that wanted me to succeed. Those were the big pieces in the box, and I had to get out my tools and put the thing together.
I've also been in the youth baseball game long enough to know that this is the rule more than it's the exception. It's rare to have what you might call a complete coaching staff. Usually, each of your two or three coaches in a season will be able to provide a specific slice of the pie, a few pieces, but not put it all together. This is okay. Be grateful for what you do have and put in the work yourself, filling in that which you don't. It might be a blessing in disguise that you get to assemble yourself, too. A student of your craft. The highest achievers in all walks of life are students of their craft. This means that they go home and put in the extra work learning whatever they can to be better the next day. This is especially important in baseball, where you have to take your coach's word that what they're telling you is correct. How do you know that your catching coach is teaching you the same blocking technique that major league players use? How do you know your pitching coach's method of pitch calling will work for you? How do you know that when your hitting coach is telling you to take the knob of the bat to the baseball, it's good, sound advice? If you're not doing your own research, then you don't know, and you're at the mercy of potentially learning things the wrong way. Not every coach will be perfect, and many of those who didn't play at the highest level will, despite meaning well, not teach the game the way it should be taught. Unfortunately, when you don't know what they don't know, You're just going to have to take their word on faith and hope for the best. This doesn't always work out well. The higher level you play at and the higher level your coaches played at, the less fact-checking you have to do and the more you just listen, absorb, and try new insights they give you. Again, signing up for the free trial is a good thing because you don't have to consider the source, rather just the idea itself. It doesn't matter if it was Babe Ruth or your grandma who told you to do it. If you tried it and it works, then it was good advice. You have to have a healthy skepticism of what you're told so that you can figure out what pieces of advice are good for you and which aren't. This skepticism will eventually lead you to your personal truth. Being a student of your craft will also give you the ability to deepen the conversation between you and your coaching staff. Hey coach, I watched Albert Pujols on video last night and I like the way he holds his hands. Do you think that would help me get out of my slump? Conversations that begin from a place of research and curiosity are ones that produce great results and deepen the bond between player and coach. Good coaches are desperate for students who want to learn and be coached. They get excited when a player has been out seeking truth in his spare time, bringing it back for approval and discussion. When players prove they are invested in getting better, coaches invest themselves in them. Difficult Coaches When you're lucky enough to play for a passionate, knowledgeable coach, you just position yourself near them and soak up their rays of wisdom. No sunscreen, absorb it all. Good coaches make it known that they care about you in one way or another. Some days, that will mean a hand on your shoulder. Other days, it'll mean pulling you aside and chewing you out. Don't mistake them being hard on you with not caring. Read between the lines. When they're rough with you, it still may be for your own good and part of the bigger plan. There's a lot more to say about bad coaches and how to be okay playing for one. They can steal your joy. They can ruin your confidence. They can end your career early. I've seen it a lot, and it hurts me knowing some kid I know is stuck playing for someone who is killing his love of the game. Coaches really are gatekeepers. In the case of junior high, high school, or pro teams, 
you won't get to pick the coaching staff or have a way out if you don't get along. The key is finding ways to coexist when the relationship is a bit strained. Protecting your skills. You should be yourself and never compromise on who you are. Yet when playing for a difficult coach, it can be helpful to understand what they're looking for in a player and what kinds of things set them off. There are closed-minded coaches who will teach a concept a certain way and there will be no discussion about it. Either you hit the way he wants you to hit or you're labeled as one of the uncoachable players. Good luck getting playing time. I played for a coach like that and the swing he taught to our hitters was something they griped about every day. Luckily, I wasn't a hitter, but I felt for the hitters. They were faced with a dilemma. Either fight with coach about what he was teaching and earn lifetime membership to his bad list, or give in and perhaps have your swing ruined. It turned out that what our coach was teaching was indeed wrong. If you saw an MLB player on TV in slow motion, his swing was the complete opposite of what our coach was teaching. The red flags that our hitters sensed turned out to be correct, and seemingly none of the world's best hitters did what he was asking them to do. Understandably, players who found success in years prior were upset being forced to change to his method. In many cases, players who conformed found their swings wrecked and were uncomfortable and unsuccessful at the plate. Nonetheless, it was his way or the highway. What did they do? How does that feel? Coach would ask as he instructed one of our hitters in the batting cage. Yeah, I can feel it in the way my hips rotate. I get what you mean, one of our hitters would say. Good. Take another swing. There it is. That one looked great, said our excited coach. Thanks. Yeah, I think I'm getting it. That conversation is what many of our hitters learned to do. They'd appease coach in the batting cage and nod and thank him for his coaching. Then, when he walked away, they'd go back to hitting the way they knew they wanted to. In games, they'd hit the way they wanted to hit, and often our coach would praise them after a line drive or double in the gap, even when they weren't hitting his way. At the end of the day, good results were good for everyone, even if the wool was being pulled over our coach's eyes and no one was really following his advice. I share this story because it's important, but I want to make a disclaimer. I do not advocate for tuning out coaches. There will be many times when something a coach is teaching you will feel weird, uncomfortable, or counterintuitive at first. If you wall up and tune every coach out saying, this isn't right for me, then you'll miss out on a lot of good coaching that could help you. However, at the end of the day, you have to make decisions about what is best for you and your career. Good coaches will put their ego aside and try to help you become the best version of yourself. Every player has different needs, and great coaches know that. They won't try to force you into doing something that doesn't fit your style of play or your body, and they'll have good evidence for the things they suggest. Our coach in this instance wasn't doing his own homework, trying to grow as a hitting coach. He kept teaching the same outdated, incorrect methods and refused to have even a discussion about it. Forcing our hitters to conform, no matter what, was wrong. In that case, they did what they needed to do to survive. The hitters listened, tried it, and decided that what he was teaching would not be good for them. They kept Coach happy by acting like they were doing things his way, then went out and did them their way when he wasn't watching 
and in games when it counted. I think this was a smart way to go about it because there wasn't much of an alternative. They didn't rock the boat, tried their best not to be disrespectful, and got what they needed to be successful. Coaches have the right to ask you to listen and try new things, but they don't have the right to force you to do something that you've earnestly tried and just doesn't work. Protecting your confidence. Let's dive deeper into the slump I mentioned in Chapter 19. I was struggling on the field and had a lot of shoulder pain. I wasn't sure which would happen first, if I'd be released from my climbing ERA or my pain would get so severe that I'd have to go on the disabled list. I wanted neither of those outcomes. Desperate, I consulted an outside pitching coach who specialized in biomechanics and got feedback on changes I could make that might alleviate my pain. I believed in the changes and felt some relief right away while implementing them playing catch. The problem, though, was that making permanent changes to your mechanics in the middle of a season when you still have to get hitters out to keep your job is incredibly difficult. I had a handful of drills I was doing at home and in pregame to try and solve my problems. I'd head out to the field before everyone else and do them in the corner of the outfield. My pitching coach had also been giving me advice about what to do, but after considering it, I didn't believe it was going to address any of my problems. He didn't understand the mechanical issues that might have been causing my arm pain, nor did he understand my mechanics like I did. His fixes were general and could have applied to any other pitcher. Plus, some strategy advice he gave didn't really reflect what I was good at and what I could change in the middle of a season. I listened when he talked, but then went back to doing the drills I wanted to do, trying to solve my problem in the best way I knew how. This didn't go over well. He began taking little jabs at me when he'd walk past and see me doing my drills. They didn't look overly weird, but he didn't understand why I needed them at all. If I had followed his advice, I wouldn't need them. There's Blewett again, doing his drills. I'd just ignore it and keep going. I was doing the best I could, but that wasn't what he wanted. He wanted me to do his best and to get back on track using his advice. It wouldn't work. The little attacks on my routine kept coming. Out here again early, huh? He'd say, sarcastically. Look at Blue. The guy's all up in his head. He'd say to another pitcher, loud enough for me to hear. Those drills are working for you? He'd ask with a sneer. We had previously been on good terms, and I liked him. But our relationship degraded, seemingly because he either didn't like what I was doing, didn't understand it, it didn't pass the eye test of what a pro ball player should be doing, or because I wasn't actively using his advice. The last thing I needed was more negativity. I was all up in my head, worried that if I didn't find a solution, I'd end up released in a week or two. I also knew that with the way my arm felt, I had no chance of making it another hundred games. My ship was sinking, so yes, I was in my head. I was not in a good place. The only thing I could do was bail water as fast as I could. I believed in what I was doing, so I blocked that coach out. His input was no longer welcome, and I did my work as far away from him as I could to insulate myself from his childish, bullying behavior. Sometimes you'll have coaches that aren't on your side. Regardless of the why behind it, if a coach is sending nothing but negativity your way, at some point you have to address it. 
You can sit down with the coach privately and talk through it, and that can be a good solution. I talked with my pitching coach a number of times about what I was doing and why. My words went in one ear and out the other. If that road is blocked, like it was for me, then your next course of action is just to wall yourself off. Set boundaries. Distance yourself. Physically move. Walk away. Do your work somewhere else, away from prying eyes. Just like you'd avoid a bully in school by taking alternate routes to class, find alternate spaces or routes around the field to minimize contact. You deserve to have a safe space from criticism and negativity, so do your best to establish one. Other times, coaches will become downright abusive. Constructive criticism can sometimes feel rough, but there's a difference between constructive criticism and bullying or abuse. Attacks on your character are never warranted. If a coach is calling you stupid or making personal attacks and nothing you've done changes their behavior, then you may need to report it to someone on the outside. Yet, a lot of times complaints will fall on deaf ears. Many coaches seemingly can do anything they want and still keep their jobs, which is a shame. As we discussed earlier, you have to lean on your mindset to insulate yourself from your critics and prevent them from bringing you down. Meditation, positive self-talk, and words of confidence can keep you afloat when everyone else seems to be trying to sink you. The Playing Time Conspiracy Feel like a coach is screwing you over just for the fun of it? It's a common flaw in judgment that when you think you're being screwed, you are. Ask yourself, can I read his mind? If you can't, be honest, then you don't actually know what his motives are. Often, there's a good reason behind a coach's move that might feel a bit uncharitable. Did he yank you out of the lineup because you had a bad game? Or is there perhaps something you're not privy to, such as the need to rest you so that you're fresh for a bigger game tomorrow? Maybe he really wants to give a lesser player a chance, and it just had to be you that he removed to provide that opportunity. Are you not pitching today because he thinks you suck? Or is it because he thinks you've pitched too much lately and he wants to save you if at all possible? Good communication is the key to any strong relationship. Yet, coaches don't have time to explain every reason behind the dozens of decisions they'll make in a game. This would be exhausting. They'd have no time left if they had to sit you down every time they made a roster move, took you out of a game, or didn't start you. It's not easy being a coach, but if you don't understand or agree with a decision, let it sit for a day or two. Consider the facts. If it still eats at you, go talk to your coach one-on-one. Don't ask mom or dad or someone else to do it. Be a good communicator, but do not assume it was a conspiracy. It rarely is. Give them the benefit of the doubt and talk through it, or just move on. There's another game tomorrow. They're people too. Coaches have a hard job, and they're on the hook if the team doesn't perform well. They also have to deal with parents an increasing amount, something which makes the job much harder. When I was a kid, my parents dropped me off at practice, cheered for me at games, and left it at that. They asked for guidance once in a while about how I could improve, and what to do about high school and college baseball, but overall, they stayed out of it and let my coaches coach. I'd say only about half of parents take this approach today, and a few difficult ones can really suck the joy out of coaching. I know this from experience. Coaches are also subject to lots of second-guessing and hindsight bias. Hindsight bias is when, after the fact, 
we view the outcome as obvious. Remember September 11, 2001? We obviously should have seen that coming and had better security, some might say. In reality, no one could have predicted that terrible tragedy. But we like to think that once we see how everything unfolded, the result should have been obvious at the time. Let me assure you, time machines don't exist. Here's an easy example. Your starting pitcher is mowing down the opposing team, and you're up 7-1 with an inning to play. You don't need a complete game out of him, so coach pulls the starter, gives him a great game hug, and gives the final inning to one of your middle relievers. This reliever usually does an average job. He'll give up a few hits or runs here and there, but is generally reliable, though certainly not spectacular. On this day, however, he gets tattooed. Seven runs come in to score in the blink of an eye, and stunned, you lose 8-7. to seven. What does everyone in the bleachers say? Well, of course we lost. What did he expect putting that pitcher in? Our starting pitcher was cruising. What a terrible coaching decision. The reality is that 9 out of 10 times, that reliever does the job and gives up a run or two at worst. Plus, even the worst pitchers will almost always hold a 6-run lead with 3 outs left to play. 7 runs? That's just a fluke, a randomly terrible game that no one could have predicted. And your coach gave that inning to that reliever out of goodwill. He wanted him to get a chance to pitch and had confidence that he would do the job. Yet, coaches roasted by angry parents, viewed, unfairly, as the village idiot. That's hindsight bias. The reason coaches deserve the benefit of the doubt is because of their underlying motives. Love of the game and a passion for helping young people are the main two reasons coaches coach. It doesn't make them much, if any, money, nor does it come with any real glory, recognition, or appreciation. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes work that has to be done so that everything is organized. Still, bad decisions are blown up, and good decisions are minimized as the expected things a coach should be doing. The key is to grant charity to a coaching decision unless it's clearly uncharitable. Assume the reason behind something you don't like is not bad unless you're 100% certain that it is. There is no conspiracy, and there may be a black swan. Don't forget that coaches aren't perfect, so give them the same leeway they give you when striking out and dropping pop-ups. It could be true that it was stupid to pinch hit for you in the fifth inning, but it was equally stupid when you missed your cutoff man by 15 feet for the seventh time this season. The worst thing you can do as a player is make their job even harder by showing up late, being off task, or giving a lazy effort. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't be the player who brings his coach down and makes him dread going to the ballpark. Shoot them straight. I'm painting the rosiest picture of coaches that I can because I'm grateful for all of them. When you're old enough and can look back, you realize they all shape you no matter how they treat you. I made it out on top in a good place. But I know that you might not feel the same way and you will have coaches that lie or mistreat you. You'll have coaches that play the nepotism game, the politics game, all sorts of games that have little to do with actual baseball prowess. Most, though, will be fair, or at least fair enough, relative to a whole team of players who all have somewhat conflicting needs. Giving playing time to you usually requires taking playing time from someone else. It may be objectively fair that you get more, as you're the better player, 
but it still may feel unfair to your teammate who gets squeezed out. There can only be one third baseman, after all. The best coaches, though, will be honest with you above all else, even when you don't like it. They'll tell you how it is and hopefully pull you aside every once in a while to give you a more complete picture of what's going on and where you fit in. The best you can do in return is to have the same policy. If you feel strongly about a certain thing, be it your role on the team, playing time, or an interaction with a teammate or coach, addressing it head-on is the way to go. Don't run your mouth in private, bashing or griping behind anyone's back. Sit down with them and talk it out. Good communication improves any relationship, and sometimes knocking on your coach's door and hashing through an issue is the only way forward. They used to be you. It's easy to forget that most of your coaches were once young players with big dreams just like yours. I know it's hard to imagine, but in their youth, your coaches had the same ambitions, the same talent, and probably the same work ethic. They learned as they went, made a lot of mistakes, and had their own set of mentors help them along. Yet with the ravages of aging, a beer belly, and a full-time job, they might not look the part anymore. When that happens, it's easy to forget. Have you forgotten that many of your coaches used to be outstanding players, perhaps much better than you are or ever will be? I had former major leaguers manage me on multiple different teams, and even then, it sometimes became difficult to picture them as players. But they'd been through it just the same as I had, growing pains and all. The older they get, the less they'll talk about their playing days. It gets hidden beneath numerous layers. Yet, their coaching cues and advice is always an extension of what they know, what they experienced, what they could do on the field themselves. Before you dismiss advice that might not make sense to you, remember that there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom you may be accidentally looking past. Don't be shy about asking about their playing days either. All of us old guys like an excuse to tell a story or two. You'll need their help down the road. In August of 2013, I passed the year mark in my recovery from my second Tommy John surgery. I would be turning 28 that winter. It was not good to be both out of the game and seeing the big 3-0 in the distance. I was getting old and needed someone to take a chance on me. I was an aging right-handed pitcher with only three years of pro experience prior to a second major arm injury. Who would want me? Front offices are nervous about signing injury-prone pitchers like myself because it creates roster uncertainty. Could they count on me to stay healthy and contribute? Or would I wind up back on the disabled list, costing them innings and workers' compensation dollars? Both were valid uncertainties. What's more, there were many younger pitchers who could throw 94 miles per hour or had a changeup or curveball similar to mine. They could do the job as well as me, at least on paper. So what would push a team to sign me and give me a chance to get back on the inside? Here's the thing you need to remember about both baseball and life. Where working hard and having talent is a given, who you know becomes critically important. I don't mean this in the political sense of getting something you didn't earn, either. In sports, there is no shortage whatsoever of players who want to play pro baseball. Rather, it's like a zombie movie where the horde of the undead is trying to beat down the doors. At high levels, the characteristics that separate players are very, very small, and everyone wants one of the few jobs available. 
Yet it's still very hard for pro teams to find dependable players because succeeding in pro ball is really hard. Before I got injured, I was reliable. Ask a CEO in any industry. Hiring great employees is one of the hardest parts of building a successful company. So it goes in baseball, too. It was hard dealing with the uncertainty of whether or not the huge amount of rehab, waiting, and time away from the game would even get me back in the door. I could have called, emailed, and begged for a tryout or spring training invite and not gotten one. It was very possible that I had gone through that entire Tommy John rehab for nothing. I'd just be stuck outside, waiting in the rain, looking through the window, locked out. I did the work. Most people would have quit. Just let me in. Please. When it came to getting me back into pro ball, one of my coaches stuck his neck out for me. He made multiple calls and got me a spring training invite. Then, I was the last player cut. He called more teams, refused to stop until I had a jersey on my back. After a hard two weeks, sleeping on couches and driving to tryouts, I got a call. They faxed over a contract, and I had a locker with my name on it once again. Then, it was on me. I had to pitch well enough to stick. I did. I could not possibly have done it without my former coach's help. Those calls, and him vouching for me, swearing that they'd be fools not to sign me, was the reason I got three more amazing seasons of baseball. I only earned his help because I was one of the players who made his job easier. I left it all out on the field that year when I got injured, and kept a good attitude in the clubhouse as I hung around, waiting for surgery. He didn't owe me anything, but yet didn't hesitate when I asked for his help. Coaches listened to other coaches, and I needed his connections, someone to vouch for me. Be a good teammate, even when you're struggling and it's hard to have a good attitude. Be coachable and listen, even if the advice might not be what you need. Be a good son, even when your dad eats the last cinnamon sugar Pop-Tart when you're late for school and you have to eat stupid oatmeal instead, Dad. When you impress and are good to people today, it may come back around later. Maybe he'll take you out for ice cream, you know, to make up for that Pop-Tart. Maybe you'll be lucky enough to get a paycheck as a professional athlete. But regardless of how your career pans out, the happiness in your life will be determined by the relationships you keep. Family, friends, teammates, co-workers, bosses, and coaches. If there's harmony today, life will be good tomorrow. If there's discord today, there will be trouble tomorrow. Life is a big circle. So work hard and do your best to take care of those who take care of you. All right. So that, again, that was chapter 27 from my new book, Clean Your Cleats. And I hope you enjoyed it. Obviously, coaches are really influential. They play such a large role in so many young male and female athletes' lives. And I just think there's a lot that needs to be said about that relationship and how to deal with really good coaches and bad coaches and just how to be open-minded and, and to understand what kind of gifts you're being given um, having these role models and these mentors in your life. So if you enjoyed this, you can grab a copy of the book. Again, it releases on February 15th, 2022, and you can find it on all major platforms. You'll find it in hardcover, paperback, ebook, and of course, uh, audiobook. So thanks again. I hope you enjoy my new book.